0: Welcome to the Woman Who Rubs the Mountain podcast, a gathering place for conversations about ecological embodiment and intimacy with place. I'm your host, Kendra Ward, acupuncturist and land alchemist, currently living on traditional Abenaki land in what is now called Vermont. In these explorations, we wonder, what happens when we rub on the body of the earth? How does the earth brush back against us? Waking up from a great forgetting, these inquiries bring us to the fluid interfaces of human body and land body. Along the way, it's my hope that we diversify our sense of relational kinship, discover creative Disruptive ways of living beyond our human centric tendencies and make wide space for a new, old, earth honoring culture to re emerge. Because in these joy soaked but bleak times, falling in love with the land and the beings where we live is truly the basis of healing and reconciliation, a resistance against ecocide, and the special work of our human hearts used well welcome everyone to this one year anniversary version of the woman who rubs the mountain podcast it's been feeling like a good moment to take a sacred pause and consider the continued vision and intent of this podcast as well as do a little storytelling and reflection. So today we're going to continue to wonder what does it mean to be intimate with place? The paths, the imprints, the pressing we do on this world. What are we leaving in our wakes? And return How are the landscapes where we live pressing on us, living through us, creating passageways through our hearts and psyches? This is the inquiry that I want to continue to make a home in, this ancient call and response, this skin upon skin, this risk of overlapping closeness. I want to know what happens when we scrape our bodies against stone, depositing old hymns and primeval astonishments into our backbones. What happens when we scuff our feet on dirt and all of the celestial minerals, the iron and magnesium and calcium enters our souls, turning our blood into a mixture of loam and crooked stars? What happens when we stroke our hands against lichen, leaf, flower, and they enmesh into our most fragile skin, our exposed flanks, the backs of our knees, our velvet eyelids? It feels like there's a fierce loyalty required when we return over and over again to be shaped, imagined even, by the beings the weather, the land forms, and the elemental powers where we live. So today, I'd like to share with you a little more about my story and the mountain that I live with, and how some days this mountain knows more about me than perhaps I know about myself. And I'm hoping that these inquiries will also help you wonder about why you live where you do, How does the place where you live reflect something back to you about where you are in your life right now? What does this place know about you that you don't know or can't see about yourself? So before we officially begin, I'd love to take a moment to declare a few gratitudes. This is a practice I don't always succeed in, declaring my gratitudes before beginning. Saying my thanks before walking the path or before cutting that flower, before eating those plants for dinner. And I hope to push up against my training, which is traditionally to just add a few thanks at the end as an afterthought or to forget altogether. And instead, I hope to utter these gratitudes in the beginning because I feel like this potent pause makes the soil of my life more rich and generative and I welcome you to in any way it feels relevant to to engage in these gratitudes as well. So my first thanks is to you for joining this circle intermingled with the fickle spirit of technology. Thank you for opening your heart with me in everyday explorations of topophilia loving the places where we live. I'd also like to give thanks to the larger geographies, the big sacred intelligences, the vast fungal cosmologies, the many, many tree families that I don't just live with but live in. I give thanks for the larger collective land spirits that I make a life with who nourish me sometimes in little precocious miracles or beauty, and other times in riddles and in time frames that are just out of reach of my human mind. Finally, I'd like to give thanks and bring forth the voice and presence of the place that I am directly informed by in a sense of very local closeness, this sacred mountain that I live with. When I say thanks to this mountain, I'm not thinking about some big hulking piece of rock, but instead giving thanks to the entire body of this place and every single last being that makes its home here, including me. So I just really feel it strongly in every episode and every conversation. The presence of this mountain rises up into the room with me. And I I took a moment to introduce the mountain in the very first episode, but I thought that I would take a moment to bring the mountain into the room right now, since it is literally the namesake of the podcast. And I feel like the mountain is this teacher and wellspring from which all of my ideas come from. And in an act of vulnerability, I have this feeling that describing The mountain and this land where I am will probably expose something to you, uh, something quite secret about my own inner landscapes. So just as an orientation in time and space, I live at latitude 44.310612 and longitude minus 73.253197. I know, just a funny bunch of numbers, really. But isn't this, this how we orient as humans? Longitude, latitude. I live on Turtle Island in what is now called Vermont, Les verdes the Green Mountains, in a land that for many thousands of years was primarily stewarded by the Western Abenaki people and is still loved on by the living Abenaki citizens of today. Nothing is handed over very easily in this place called Vermont. These are lands of ice age bloodlines and gods forgotten and color palettes of dark purple and blue and gray. This is a land of thin veils and cold hard beauty Deeply contracted winters and gloriously explosive green summers. And although I didn't know it at the time, I moved to this land in order to live in a place where the resonance of the more than human beings was stronger than the resonance of the humans. And I hope that you understand what I mean by this or have had some visceral experience of this yourself. I think this is really what attracts millions of visitors to national parks every year, this craving of the sacred wild, craving, uh, feeling blown over by the immensity of something more potent and vast than our limited domesticated spaces. I think we crave it, oftentimes without knowing, um, being in places where we get a little bit of a break from the resonance of other humans. So here in the Green Mountains, it feels like the power coming off of the lake and the clouds and the forests that there's space enough for their daytime conversations and their nighttime dreaming and their bodies, slow movements to overshadow even the sound of the trucks on the highway or planes going overhead That despite all of our unconscious efforts as humans to claim all of the space on this planet, to be the noisiest and fastest and brightest, that there's space here for the elemental forces and the land's presence to echo with a strength of old, the old glory of, of times past. And in this world where open spaces are rapidly being paved over and sort of exhaustedly inundated, I recognize the privilege I have to be a steward and a friend to this place. And I hope to show up here humaning well. So as large swaths of the global population are creating larger and larger cities as there's just this sort of continued spread year after year. Few of us, fewer of us are left to see what happens as our species abandons the land. And in human built environments shared with only other humans, where else can one seek beauty but through the lens of other humans and things of human making? In a sense, our lens then becomes human alone And nature continues to become more of an abstraction, something out there, away, outside of us. And as we know, with so many things in life, if it doesn't hit us personally, it's much harder to care. As Barbara Kingsolver describes, quote, A living fabric of a trillion interconnected species is a hard miracle to believe in or fight for if we've only known the one of them who is us. Not impossible, but it's a project, getting harder all the time. We can only love what we know. End quote. So just pausing here in the complexity of things, there's not a rightness or wrongness of the situation because without a doubt, urban life has its rewards and honestly i frequently lament not having the convenience and connectivity of other humans that comes with living in a city there can be a loneliness but strangely this is the situation i continue to find myself in at this time in my life surprised sometimes <laughs> by living with the beauty and challenges of being in a place where Ice gods reign and fluency happens in many languages of lake currents and thunderstorms and coyotes' midnight howls. So I like to tell the story of how it's been very clear to me from the beginning who's boss here. The very first time that I visited this dark wood where my little home is tucked, a large barred owl was just waiting there in the tree midday, bright sun, just waiting to remind me of my place in the scheme of things. These woods where I live snake up the lounging body of a small mountain who has many names, but who is currently called Philo, which is the word for love in Greek. And as far as I can dig up, no one really knows exactly where this name came from. And I feel like it's one of the only peaks in the area that was spared a name um, that is not a passing white male conqueror. This mountain is called Aklipa, which is a little stone bookmark left in the land story of ge- geographical drama. So klippa is an outlying, isolated remnant of an overthrust rock mass. And this one is a relic, truly, from the formation of the Champlain Valley Thrust Fault. Kind of like a precious artifact. So over 500 million years ago, one immense plate of the Earth's crust collided with and burst up against another, creating this island in the sky. And, you know, the way that geography works, I feel like... There's no way to get the mind to work properly when we're trying to contemplate someone this old. 500 million years, I feel like, any attempt of understanding the time frame of this mountain turns my mind into mush, and I'm just immediately put into place. These ancient rocks hold the charm and the deepest old womanly knowing of where I live— Living on feldspar and chomping Moncton quartzite between these teeth, the old grandparents of archaic earth, they, they come to me like riddles. So I have this question that I return to over and over again when I first tried to integrate here How do you have a conversation with stones? We just always seem to be deep in sleep with. Maybe, if you're lucky, one eye slitted open. What if they've been asleep too long already? What if they don't want to speak to me? So unlike trying to communicate with the spirit of a flower or a bird, being in relationship with old stones, and I call them the deep dreamers, this feels like just a really entirely separate matter altogether. So admittedly, for the first couple of years, I felt pretty overwhelmed and frustrated at times with this vibe of what I perceived as a sort of perpetual cold indifference. Like these elders did not really seem like they were very interested in conversation. And also, I you know, realize over and over again that my time frames are very brief and pretty feeble compared to theirs. And my impatience is pretty silly. So the truth is, is that no one, you know, has tried to communicate with these old ones in a very long time. And my tongue and my heart continue to be awkward with the effort of these new dialects. So just kind of continue to apply a little bit of stubbornness and just would practice returning over and over again in every season, in every temperature, bringing gifts of dried flowers and shells and lemon rind and little candles, a bit of honey, my daughter's silky hair and lots of prayer. The wintertime, actually, although so deeply contracted, is almost easier. You know, just there's this peacefulness in getting to connect at that time of year. In the summer, many, many humans come and walk joyfully, carelessly on the body of the mountain. And in some ways, the old rocks retreat deepest at the height of summer kind of creating this callous from the exhausting noise and relentless footfalls. And truly, I am so happy that people are drawn here. And aside from being a protected state park, humans have been drawn to visiting this place since the very beginning, drawn to its murmuring boulders and just far, far beautiful, clear views, I feel like people sense the power of these rocks. Otherwise, they wouldn't, you know, be so drawn to them or pick them up or slip them in their pockets as talisman, hoping for some kind of extra durability and resilience. But for all of the many humans who visit this place, how many stop to acknowledge its livingness? Because it's not just the birds who warble here, but the rocks themselves, mew and roar, the bulk of their bodies shift and erode and cavort in contraction and expansion. This seemingly stable mountain tells us that nothing on earth is solid, that the future is always waiting to rise anew. I've often in my mind kind of held this little, this hope for a secret experiment, you know, wondering what would happen if there was a sign at the little toll booth to enter the state park that said something to the effect of, you are walking on the bodies of stones hundreds of millions of years old. There are sacred bones in these paths. I I wonder if perhaps that little sign would be just this Little reminder to many thousands of visitors who come through every summer to, quote, walk so silently that the bottom of our feet become ears, end quote, as Pauline Oliviaris says, to be reminded that their feet are feeling the notches, the divots, the scars on the femurs and ulnas and craniums of these stone elders. So one of the most common questions that I've been asked in the last year about the podcast is, where did you get that name? (laughs) It seems a little incendiary. And are you the woman? So, yes, I am the woman. And also, from a greater viewpoint, we are all the woman. We all come from a woman. Woman in her totality. Woman is that first woman our original ancestor, woman as the void that births all things. So I rub this mountain and this mountain rubs me. I live on the mountain and I live in the mountain and the mountain lives in me. And in the evening times, I place myself deep in these lands. So in my mind's eye before falling asleep, I practice burying bits of my body in the ground where the wild garlic bulbs rest and where the roots of the goldenrod slumber and where the legs of white pine hold down the cliff sides, where mycelium and seeds and woody hands overlap and overweave in an endless matrix of fertility and potential. Because this is, you know, there's so many places we can go in our dreams. But this is really where I want to go in my dream time, to the vast consciousness and dark velvety enigma of this place. So it's interesting to me what stirs in people with this word rubbing, or even the word intimacy, really. It takes people off guard, it stops them in their tracks, because... We associate intimacy with sex, and uh, the truth is that intimacy, real intimacy, is about a truth revealing something about ourselves or taking a risk in a wholehearted way. So I've had a few thoughts about this rubbing. Actually, these thoughts were conjured over a year ago when I was first dreaming up this podcast. And in reviewing these these contemplations, I realized that my these thoughts on, on rubbing a place, they've gone unchanged. Rubbing the mountain is not an act of extraction or gathering or thoughtless taking. This feels like the first most important declaration. I might bring my loneliness, my desires, my vulnerabilities here with a sense of honest availability, and not a cloying neediness. Because this land is not my therapist, it's not part of my self care process. It does not exist so I can stockpile its calm into my nervous system. This is not my emotional support mountain. And it feels deeply important to me to not practice an unwanted taking, even on the mental emotional level. Rubbing the mountain scrubs me clean, it lightens me, it scours me alive. Impurities seem to fall away and excesses are essentialized. Fault lines crack and raw bits are burnished, polished to full shine. I praise the many ways of mattering devoted to diversifying my sense of relational closeness here. I might return to my dominator's training, my separatist thought, and all of this deep cultural indoctrination until I'm able to purge it from my system time and time again. I don't want to make assumptions about how this place wants to be loved or touched or spoken to. I want to let someone else lead for a long while because relationship is not created through a one-sided human-centric conversation. Rubbing the mountain anoints me in adoration and belonging. These slow moving peacemakers, these rocks and trees, these bright teachers, they are my living family. I yearn to know them and the stories of their lives lichen birthmarks along trunk spines, oak arms tirelessly extended toward the sky in prayer, peoples dilated wide in excitement of the wind. Every time I return, I practice seeing along the periphery. And sometimes, if I'm lucky, something previously unknown is revealed. Rubbing the mountain gives me an opportunity to run my fingers over the scars of another. The wounds that lay fresh in this landscape, the deforestation, a different kind of rubbing, the stripping away, the emptying out of this place by large toothed saws and sheep cattle jaws, hooves taking every last shred of living wood. Sheep fever, it was called. We think things will grow back exactly the same, but there is always the immeasurable collateral damage. Covered up by green now, it's hard to know the true vitality of their secret worlds, the true cost of this past taking. I come to witness these still lingering hurts and the way they reflect long legacies of supremacy, colonization, violence on people and place. Rubbing the mountain moves me out of my impatience, this vast, disruptive, loud energy I carry with me. The earth is an ancient being who holds primordial powers with layers of depth that are concealed from me. I find it psychologically and spiritually broadening to at times crush myself in irrelevance. Here I feel into my purposeful not knowingness the way the mysteries of life do not want to be pinned down or revealed as they are reconfiguring me. Here I make ample space for the tricksters, the shunned, the invisible, the dark dwellers, the misunderstood within me and all around me. Rubbing the mountain clears my head and comforts me as this old world is dying. Let us find a deliberacy in our lives, rooting out our deep stories of separation and superiority. How will we ever take action, true action, if we do not know how to love first? As mythologist Martin Shaw suggests, quote, What might free up when we stop telling the living world what it is? End quote. Let us decentralize humans from the global story, creating disruption through joy and awe in relatedness. Sometimes I know the truths of this rubbing clear, but more than anything, there's something very old in it for me, like this ancient beats. Something that I've forgotten that wants to be remembered. Something slippery, the way we search to grab hold of a thread of sleep at 3 a.m. I'm following my way back into things I once knew in another time. I feel deep familiarity stir in my body. Some days I feel utterly frustrated to be lost in this mist-filled gap, trying to recall something old while also imagining something new. But always from the depths, there's this tug. A warm, calloused hand pulls me forward. So these are some of my thoughts a year ago about this rubbing, rubbing of place. And all of it feels pretty true still. And there are a few topics that I'm hoping to explore in a deeper way in this, in this coming year. Mostly just continued efforts to invite the land, the fungi, and the trees, so on, inviting them into the conversation, conversations about everything, but perhaps particularly what matters most at this moment on this changing planet, what matters in terms of harm and reconciliation, what matters, you know, in terms of this bone level meaning, I'm also continuing to feel really deeply interested in the blurred intersections of human body and land body, the overlapping of internal and external terrains. And I hope to continue to explore the various ways that we press up against or make contact with the living world around us in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. So, Speaking of rubbing or pressing, I think that this external pressure of imprint, matter upon matter, in some ways it's universal and ubiquitous that our bodies are always, you know, their stories are always expressed into the ethers. It's happening all the time. My foot falls and presses into the spring mud. The morning cloak moth presses its wings into the air. The creek presses its shiny body against the confines of its banks. We're all each telling a story of our individual genius, our secret intelligence, our histories of truth, through this pressing. The land, meaning the larger ecosystem with all the elementals, the weather, the spirits of all of it, The land remembers each of us this way, in this sacred touch. So trace, track, mark-making, pass of pilgrimage. It's no wonder that tracking is the oldest form of orienting and wayfaring, perhaps beginning with the ancient knowing of some of the oldest human lineages on Earth, the Aboriginal First Peoples of Australia. According to their cosmology, the world was created in a time known as the dream time, when the ancestors emerged to find the earth as a black, flat, featureless terrain. They began to walk out across the earth and release the sleeping life beneath it so that the landscape sprang up into being with each pace. And each ancestor while traveling through the country, was thought to have scattered a trail of words and musical notes along the line of his footprints. So depending on where they fell, each footnote, these footnotes became linked with particular features of the landscape. So the world, in a way, was covered by these dreaming tracks, and they continued to lay over the land as a way of communication each track having its own corresponding song. So I've been wondering about song while walking the paths of the forest. Song, like story, like it's this breathing, heaving, shivering, alive human being, like really elevating our sense of, of song what that means. The Aboriginal ways and their cosmology of understanding is theirs alone, but I do think that song, singing, vibration, resonance, these things are a universal affair coming out of every single one of us in one way or another. So I've been wondering about the hidden song within the matrix of this mountain, prehistoric and guttural, left by the ancestors of white pine and sharp-shinned hawk and fern, and all the others, as well as the first humans who walk these paths. So having a forced agenda, especially the humanly-willed kind of agenda, does not aid us in hearing these songlines, but instead it feels like it requires this returning with a tender sort of coaxing, maybe with rose-petal offerings, and ears tuned to the special hum at the edge of some other realm. So in this sense of creating intimacy with the place where I live, I feel very aware of my pressing and path-making. How we take up space, where we go, the trails we create, how we move. This is not accidental, but in a way it's a... It's a form of being and knowing. We haunt and become the haunted, like these ghosts leaving invisible fingerprints wherever we go. And I remember that as humans, we're we're actually meant to create a little bit of healthy disruption, announcing our love for the place where we are with our feet. Robert McFarlane, in his book, The Old Way, A Journey on Foot, he says that quote, paths are the habits of a landscape. They are acts of consensual making. It's hard to create a footpath on your own. Paths are consensual too, because without common care and common practice they disappear. Overgrown by vegetation, ploughed up or built over. Paths need walking. End quote. I love this sentiment of consensual making. And in my experience, the the white untouched canvas of snow really is the best for watching all of this path creation. In the snow, I can see red fox moving through one footprint in front of the other in this straight line, sort of barely there. And I can imagine a light crimson body just brushing the surface. And in the snow, I can see raccoon's long fingers pressed perfectly into, into, the, into the white like a scholar precisely writing out sacred texts along the trail. In the snow, I find deer's cloven heart markings, each getting further and further away from each other as, as the deer's powerful body kind of pushes further and further up the hill. And then I look back at my own prints, oval-shaped and rather boring, heavy and orderly, and I start to wonder, is this all I have to offer? So I decide to circle around the old owl snag and move off the path here and flow and wiggle off the path there. Sometimes different paths are created by fox or squirrel or hare, and they seem to intersect run horizontally. And I start to wonder about all the other tracks that exist in other realms, neural pathways and bloodlines, electrical heart lines, lines that run adrift, lines that wanna rebel or suddenly change course. The best is when I find layers of footprints, places where the deer's feet have pressed little hearts into my old tracks. And I'm glad that they've found a way to make their walking easier when the snow deepens. And this inspires me to take their lead, kind of switching up the game. And I get to follow their footpaths to places I wouldn't normally explore. And occasionally I'll come to a place where a family of deer have taken a rest. There's strange imprints of rounded deer bellies left there. And there's always this one preserved footprint, smack dab in the middle, where they've pushed up with their dominant leg when it was time to go. Sometimes these deer napping prints are still warm, if I'm lucky. And when I stumble across one of these deer yards, as they're called, I can't help but feel called to honor their family's legacies in this place. that their ancestors have shed many bones on this mountain, and the surrounding lands. Stories and old knowings live within their antlers. And when those antlers fall to the ground, they act as a potent resource for the many smaller creatures. A mythology of minerals meant for the teeth of mice and squirrels and rabbits. That's why it's so darn rare to find antlers because their calcium is a precious food for the many small ones. Deer put a a certain hard pressure on this place because of the imbalanced predator-prey relationship here. And also they're not to blame for this ecological instability. Instead, I feel them bringing their special talents to this woodland community. And there's one particular special talent I feel they possess which is presence. And you can feel it, this very rich tradition of camouflage and careful feet. Their ears just always listening. And it feels really essential to learn from deer in this way to preserve presence, which is like its own endangered animal on this planet these days. For it's a it's a serious thing to pay attention this closely, because when we forget how to listen, we forget how to be made whole by the world. I wish that I could say that living with deer solely conjures up feelings of awe, and it does, but it's mixed with the dread of ticks and Lyme disease and finding one of those black blood suckers on the tender skin of my son's back having to hold relentless vigilance of tick checks every night all summer long. But even still, with all of that, I'm grateful for deer's essential place here, uh, deer's essential presence. And last year I found a complete baby deer skeleton pressed into the spring mud. The year before that, a lone deer tibia appearing in early winter, picked clean with this hairy hoof still attached. In my mind's eye, I wondered about the perhaps one-footed footprints that might make their way behind me as soon as I turned my head. Deer's paths on this mountain continually act as a lived memory of breath and blood, this continued enchanted form of speech So, whether they're organized or haphazard, paths have this way of storing history. Just as they can easily be overgrown if we don't walk them, the soil of paths is this memory bank of experience. And here, Robert McFarlane's voice again he says, For untold thousands of years, we traveled on foot over rough paths. Not simply as peddlers or commuters or tourists, but as men and women for whom the path and road stood for some intense experience. Freedom, new human relationships, a new awareness of the landscape. The road offered a journey into the unknown that could end up allowing us to discover who we were. He goes on to say that, paths connected real places but they also led outwards to metaphysics backwards to history and inwards to the self walking was a means of personal myth making end quote it's true that while on a path there is a sense of necessity in occasionally looking back assessing where we've come from and perhaps seeing it from a different angle And I have to say that in this path-making, there are definitely times when I sense a presence, walking the trail just a few paces back like a ghost. And with time, I've come to feel this presence to be the shadow of entropy, of confusion or collapse, that the tracks I leave here have a mark and then very quickly are covered up by leaves and snow fallen trees, other tracks, and so on, that all of our efforts to love and to show up with grace to make the right choices, they can be forever gripped and grabbed at by the long wispy fingers of breakdown. The science of entropy tells us that it's just the natural tendency of things to lose order, that left to its own devices, life will always become less structured, Sand castles get washed away, weeds overtake gardens, cars begin to rust, we age. With enough time, even mountains erode and their precise edges crumble down. That this pull of entropy is relentless. The ghost of entropy asks, does it really matter in the end, all of these efforts? Not buying food in plastic tubs? Or spending your time singing songs to the creek or teaching your children about the honorable harvest when still our human tribe seems to be getting sicker and sicker in body, heart, and mind. Even our flower offerings wilt, our prayers get lost on the wind, our loving of this place, not necessarily lasting, as we too are not meant to last Everything is in process. Every growing, dying tree, every summer bumblebee, every dried milkweed is being devoured, left to decompose, and return, always changing, moment to moment. This is when I feel the crush of the hopelessness, the doubt, the sort of why bother the uprising of despair that occasionally follows me and occasionally I feel its presence on the trail. And I remember the words of poet David White, he says, quote, despair is a necessary and seasonal state of repair. To see and experience despair fully in our body is the first step in letting it have its own life, End quote. So every once in a while, I turn around on the trail and have a look at my own despair. I feel its breath and its living shape. And somehow letting the full weight of it lean on me is easier than letting it sort of like hang on me silently, pulling at me slowly from behind. Despair has its own rhythm and naturalness, and in a way... Despair asks for its own difficult form of faith and friendship in this strange world. Some days, despair walks the mountain with me, just along, along with also a radical not knowingness and a trust in cosmic competencies, all together, just keeping time, keeping time with my cadence and kind of feeling this to be a necessary ghosting an alternative to simply giving up. So when I look forward along the path, when my gaze tends straight, once again, I notice the the whole of the living world reaching out to me. And I hope that I can continue to enhance my capacity to reach out to the living world. This This is how I wanna orient and understand myself in space. So one last thought here from Robert McFarlane, he says, quote, people understand themselves using landscape by the topographies of self we carry within us and by the maps we make with which to navigate these interior terrains. We think in metaphors drawn by place, and sometimes those metaphors do not only adorn our thought, but actively produce it. For some time now, it has seemed to me that the two questions we should ask of any strong landscape are, what do I know when I'm in this place that I can know nowhere else? And then, vainly, what does this place know of me that I cannot know of myself? End quote. So let me just read those two questions one more time, slowly. What do I know when I'm in this place that I can know nowhere else? And what does this place know of me that I cannot know of myself? I just feel like these are such great questions. And it leads me to previous inquiries, Um, you know, personally, but I I hope that these are good, juicy inner ponderings for you too, personally. So, you know, this continued wondering, this exact place where we are, what can we what, what, how does it help us know ourselves? and, And how does being in this place allow us to know things that we would not know anywhere else? So personally, I ask myself, what do these long, contracted winters and deep-dreaming boulders know about me that I can't know of myself? I feel like this place where I live has the mark of the hag, the elder, things unraveling in slow timelines, hesitant to reveal themselves fully. What does this place already know about what I am, what I could be, what I'm moving towards? How am I nourished or aggravated or healed by this place as I walk not up the mountain, but into the mountain? I've asked these questions frequently over the last few years, and it seems that rubbing this mountain is teaching me about this icy, unpredictable beauty, and endurance and resilience, perhaps a spiritual maturing up. This place seems to ask for the shedding of skin upon skin, glacial movements carving until only hard-earned truths and bleached bones are left. And, in turn, my own rubbing on this place is like a peeling back of layers of sleep and disrepair, like I'm meant to gently nudge the land awake from a very long slumber. So... It feels like it's in these dark, deliciously thin places where I rub, and then the land rubs me back, where we can begin to hear and know each other. The border between human and living world grows delicate and porous. And slowly, we can begin to catch each other's voices, to hear a certain low-pitched humming below the surface. Author Kerry Ni Dochartei describes how, quote, Heaven and earth, the Celtic saying goes, are only three feet apart, but in thin places that distance is even shorter. They are places that make us feel something larger than ourselves, as though we are held in a place between worlds beyond experience. End quote. So I guess I'm continuing to rub up a little closer to God in this way. Looking for a thinning at dusk's border, during gossamer-veiled mornings, at spirit-touched old growth groves of trees, and along storm-sculpted shores. But I'm not just drawn to thin places in the physical landscape, but also to the creatures around me that seem to be not quite of this world. The celestial sort of watery call of hermit thrush, or the mystical red juice of bloodroot, or the dead-alive grandmother maples, whose openings, the dark openings in their trunks, seem like a straight shot right to the lower world's. I also find thinness in unexpected places, like in the Artemisia cathedrals that grow along the highway, or finding an immovable barred owl perched on a power line midday, or even in all of the intertwining of human and non-human made spaces. The broken out windows of falling apart barns, The concrete median strips, asphalt potholes, even these can be portals of liminality transporting us to somewhere else. So I'm here practicing patience, learning presence from the deer, slowing down enough with the white pines to hear the spirit voices of the old stones themselves. In her book, Hagitude, Sharon Blackie says, quote, Every place has taught me a lesson I needed to learn precisely at that time. Because places, above all, reflect us back to ourselves. More than this, they teach us the many ways we might become in the world. Deserts, forests, coastlines, mountains, rolling green fielded countryside, prairies, Centers of human habitation from great ancient cities to small country villages, each of them reveals something different to us about our patterns and potentials. Intrinsic, inseparable, me, the land, our stories, the physical world and the imaginal perfectly intertwined, End quote. So I'm really hoping that this sparks some wonder, some questioning in you as well. Why do you think that you're drawn to live in the place where you are? And how does this place reflect something back to you about where you are in your life right now? What does this place know about you that you don't know or is hard to see about yourself? And what new universes of connection is this place longing to create with you? So I appreciate you being in these inquiries with me. May we love and be loved on in this continued homecoming with the place where we are. And I look forward to another year of consensual pathmaking, of rubbing this mountain and being uh, brushed back in return. And I look forward to another year of earnest inquiry and conversation with fellow earth honoring folks from around the world. And you can keep this podcast healthy and well nourished by leaving a review or subscribing to the podcast ongoingly from whatever your preferred listening source is. Please do spread the word. And you can always listen to past podcast episodes Send me a comment or story or learn more about my work in general by going to KendraWard.com. May we discover new ways while also remembering old ways of relating and being in kinship as we continue to bring an open-armed adoration and devotion for this wild earth. Bye for now.